I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. The world was shocked when this mild-mannered father did the unthinkable. But would he get away with this second start, or would he be brought to justice? This is The List Family Story. Hey, Megan, we have a very special episode today. I know. I was excited. Why don't you uh, tell us a little about it? Yeah. So our friend Rebecca Everett over at NewJersey.com and the Star Ledger joins us today. Now, we first spoke to Rebecca a couple of years ago when she interviewed us about Melanie McGuire's case. That's right. I remember. So it's really cool to be able to work with her again. And I am a huge fan of her podcast. Father Wants Us Dead. Have you had a chance to listen yet? Not yet, but I didn't want to ruin it for today's episode. Okay. So although I do provide an overview of the facts of the case, I urge you all to listen to Father Wants Us Dead for a very detailed description of this case. So the case we're talking about today is a New Jersey case, and the Star Ledger and NJ.com covered this case throughout the years. But two reporters decided to go back, dig through files, and do a deep dive on this case to try to wrap our heads around what happened, because as we'll soon find out, it is the kind of case that leaves you with more questions than answers. I remember this case quite well, too. Do you? From when you were a kid? I actually remember it. Uh, Megan, it happened in the 60s. I just meant like seeing the, I watched like the unsolved mysteries. You know what I mean? Well, I can just tell you that I remember hearing about this case like when I grew up a lot. I'm not sure why, but I definitely did. I was real familiar with it. Maybe because we were from around the area. Well, actually, in 1989 is when America's Most Wanted aired an episode about that's what I'm thinking of. Thank you very much. I feel feel redeemed. Good. So you were not a child in the 60s. No, thank God. Yeah, no, this case is definitely infamous in New Jersey. I think we could say it's one of the top three cases when you think about true crime in New Jersey. Yeah. And it happened not far from our campus, Megan, only about a half hour. Right. 
So before we jump into today's story, here is Rebecca introducing herself. My name is Rebecca Everett. I'm an investigative crime reporter at NJ.com and the Star Ledger. Um, my coworker, Jess Remo, and I did the reporting, and we are co-hosts of the podcast, Father Wants Us Dead. John List, who will become the focus of this story, was raised in a strict religious home where his family struggled financially. John's mother was reportedly very strict, and he wasn't allowed to play with his friends very much, and he mostly just hung out with his parents, and his mom was described as very controlling. Here's Rebecca describing John's upbringing for us. A lot of what we know about his upbringing is from his own memoir and from a lot of the reporting that's been done about him. Uh, he grew up, he was only only child to his two parents. His father was old enough to be his grandfather, very old fashioned. And his mother and his father were actually second cousins, but they were very strict, but also old fashioned. And that sort of came from their community. There was a, a German Lutheran society in Michigan and they were very insular. You know, a lot of the community was centered around the church. And his mother really, you know, kind of coddled him as much as his father was kind of aloof. His mother really paid a lot of attention to him. And, you know, he wrote in his memoir that she got worried about him if he was running around that he might get too hot, which, you know, as she was a nurse, she should have known that kids can run around and not get too hot. Okay, Megan. So clearly he has a mother who's very controlling. Um, John does well, though. John joined the Army after high school, and then he went to the University of Michigan, where he got both his bachelor's and his master's in business accounting. And then he went back to the Army for a short amount of time. In 1951, John met a woman named Helen. Uh, he was bowling with a friend, and the two of them just hit it off. It wasn't a setup. It was just a group of friends, but they were very much attracted to each other. Now, Helen had a pretty normal upbringing. She had gotten married very young, and she had a child. Unfortunately, Helen's husband had died just six months earlier in the war, and she also was battling syphilis. Turns out her husband had been unfaithful and had given her the disease. Oh, rough start here. Yeah. So I mean, although she seemed to have a lot going on, she was a widow with a nine-year-old daughter and she had a serious illness. John fell for her and the relationship between the two moved fast. Helen got pregnant pretty early on. Actually, at first, she lied about a pregnancy as a way to possibly keep him around, but then she actually did become pregnant. And according to their religion, therefore they had to get married. In December of 1951, not only did they get married, John adopted Helen's first daughter. Before they got married, John made Helen assure him that she would become a member of the Lutheran church, and she agreed. Now, religion was very important to John as it was for his family growing up. Mm -hmm. And it was important to him that his wife and future family be very strictly religious as well. Mm -hmm. I remember that. The couple lived in Detroit, Michigan, and they welcomed their first child, Patty, in 1955. They seemed like a happy family, although many would say they were a bit mismatched. Now, John was very passive, mild-mannered, and Helen was the opposite and described as very controlling. Sounds a little bit like John's mother. I was just going to say that. Don't they say we marry our parents, right? Oh, boy. Patty became a big sister a few years later when her brother John Jr. was born. Now, this was a very hard pregnancy for Helen, and most of it was spent on bed rest. And it didn't get much easier because after he was born, Helen suffered from postpartum depression. Mm. During this time, the family was very involved in the local church, and this made John very proud and very happy. Like I said, religion, very important to him. Mm -hmm. The couple would have their third and final child in 1958, a boy that they named Frederick. 
It wasn't long after the arrival of their third baby that the family started to feel a lot of strain. Now, Helen had an even more difficult pregnancy this time around, and the couple was fighting a lot. Most of their fights centered around the fact that John wanted them to be the model Lutheran family, but Helen didn't really share his beliefs. Now, Megan, I'm not sure if she never did and lied just to get him to marry her or if she was planning on adopting the religion and then decided not to. Mm -hmm. But either way, she was refusing to go to church. And this incensed John. Not only was she refusing to go to church, her physical health and her mental health were deteriorating. Remember, she had postpartum depression and she was also suffering from syphilis. So as her mental health and physical health worsened, she had trouble caring for her children. At this point, she also began drinking and she started taking medication, both prescribed and not prescribed. It's like the perfect storm here coming together. I was just going to say, as you could imagine, Megan, this made things a lot worse. And Rebecca's going to talk a little bit about what it might have been like for the children growing up with a mother like this. I think especially for Patty as the oldest of the three list kids, but also her older stepsister, Helen's first daughter, because they were older, they had to step up and take some responsibility, taking care of the younger kids. And it seemed to, with with Helen come in waves, sometimes she would be in bed for a while and then other times she would perk up and they would travel. So it wasn't all the time, but I think a lot of that really fell on the kids that they were alone a lot. Uh, we talked to a woman who was a neighbor in Rochester, New, Rochester, New York, before they moved up to Westfield. And she talked about how the kids were really well behaved, but they were mostly just on their own playing in the yard all day while mom was in bed and dad was at work. For Patty, it seemed to make her kind of grow up a little faster. And I think she was kind of independent from that. But her little brothers, I don't know if it made them feel like less competent, but they were, you know, kind of quieter and, and less outgoing. Um, so, I, you know, and I don't know if that really came from their upbringing or, you know, just their nature. So while things were a little unstable in the household, from the outside, everything looked okay. I mean, the kids were always very well-dressed. John was very concerned with appearances, as you might have guessed from the little bit we know about him. Right. Helen was angry, though, just like John was angry with her. Helen was angry at him because he was so devoted to the church. And although John did help Helen with the various ailments that she was suffering from, this in turn made him angry because people knew that his wife needed help. So again, John was very concerned about appearances. So while he did what he had to do to help his wife, he was very resentful and very angry about it. Now, John was working really hard to keep things together. He was taking care of the home, taking care of his wife, taking care of the children, being a devoted member of the church. And unfortunately, in 1959, John had gotten laid off from his job. So we talk about strain piling on. Not only is this problematic financially, this embarrassed him a lot because, again, appearances are important to John, and now John does not have a job. But luckily, he did get a job offer pretty quickly at Xerox in Rochester, New York. As a result, in 1961, the family moved to a New York suburb. Now, this job was much more demanding, and this would leave Helen to have to take care of some of the things on her own. The good news is more money meant childcare mm -hmm. opportunities. So the family was able to hire some help. For a little while, they seemed pretty happy. The marriage seemed to be better. Their financial status improved greatly. Many reports say Helen really liked the new status. She was leaning into the new money that the family was bringing in. Mm. Unfortunately, though, content times would not last long. 
1965, John again lost his job. This time it was based on his performance. He was fired, essentially. John blamed Helen. He said that she drank a lot at business gatherings and she embarrassed him and this led to him being laid off. But a closer look would really just reveal that he just wasn't performing at high level, so they let him go. Now, at this time, Helen's health was not doing very well and she was essentially bedridden while John looked for a new job. And eventually he was hired at a company in Jersey City and therefore the family had to move again. They're moving around a lot. The good thing is, although he's losing a lot of jobs, he seems to be able to get a job pretty quickly. Right. In late 1965, they moved to Westfield, New Jersey. Now, this is an upscale suburb just 30 miles west of New York City. Now, I've been to Westfield many times. You know my best friend, Christy, my other best friend. She lives in Westfield. (laughs) Megan, you've been to Westfield? I've been to Westfield once or twice. I've had lunch in the downtown area. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a very quaint little town. Kind of the town that you would not expect anything bad to happen. In fact, Christy told me people still talk about this crime in Westfield. It really shook up the whole town. I would imagine so. I'm sure it rocked uh, New Jersey in general, too, you know? Yep. So remember, John was doing very well at this time. I'm not sure he was doing this well, but regardless, the family bought a 19-room mansion on 22 acres. Oh my gosh, was it really that big? <laughs> 22 acres. I didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, it's huge. Oh, my gosh. Now, the house did need a lot of work. But the family looked forward to their future there and figured they could do things as time went on. But either way, I mean, this is a mansion, (laughs) 19 rooms. I just think that's too much to clean, but okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, things would unravel pretty quick because John had trouble making the payments on the home. Right. And although he had a high paying job, I think it became quite clear that he had bitten off more than he could chew with the purchase of this home. Right. At this point, John asked his mother, Alma, for help with some of the payments. Now, Alma agreed as long as she could move into the home. Okay. So Helen was not happy. Most people are not happy with the idea of their mother-in-law moving in. I would be okay with it because, you know, my mother-in-law is a saint, but most people would not be okay with that. Well, it could certainly put a strain on an already strained relationship as well. And again, they had just moved here. Helen was not happy here. She was very happy when they were in the other place. Remember, they were doing well. She was kind of getting used to this new status. Yeah. Now she has to start over. Again, she's not feeling well physically and mentally. She stopped going to church again. Mm. This angers John. So, yes, there is a lot of strain in the household. But regardless, John needed the financial help. And as such, Alma moved in and she had the whole third floor to herself. And it ended up working out okay because she was able to provide some child care for the family. Okay. And she was, like I said, she had her own area. So she wasn't really in their face. While the family seemed to be adjusting well in their new town, John was very reclusive and he refused to interact with the neighbors. In fact, he was downright rude to them. He also exhibited a lot of weird behavior. I'm not sure if you recall how he used to mow the lawn. Was it like in a suit or something? Exactly. He would put on like a three-piece, very formal suit to mow the lawn. He wanted people to see him mowing the lawn of his mansion in his fancy suit. John was very controlling, and he did not want his kids to socialize with any of the children in the neighborhood or at school. But as they got older, you know, at some point, you just can't control what children do. And they started socializing with people and hanging out with friends. And this angered him. Who did he want them to socialize with? The church members, I assume? Like, it would just be, you know, family and church, okay? Yeah, so, I mean, the kids did attend Sunday school, but as they got older, they would resist the church, and they would resist, really, any activities having to do with the church. You know, they attended public school. I was just going to say, that could happen in cases where it is pushed on you so much so. It's, you know, it's the opposite. It's the rebellion effect. 
And I'm not sure why, but he did not have the children in religious school. It could be because private school was too expensive. But again, with a home like that, you would think that would have been more important to him. But it's impossible to know what their thought was. But they attended public school, which a very good public school, mind you, in the area. Mm -hmm. And the children all worked. They had extracurricular activities. They had many friends. Now, a lot of these friends did report how odd John was anytime that kids visited the home. So it was known amongst all the social circles that the list father was a very strange guy. Okay. So to make matters worse for John, his new job also let him go after just a year. I'm seeing a problem here just so we know what to talk about later with job instability here. Something's off. Lots of job instability. And he was panicked now and again, very embarrassed. So much so that Helen and the kids had no idea that he lost his job. Mm. Get this, Megan. He would leave for work every day, dressed, sat at the train station for hours. This went on for six months. Do you know I know of someone in real life that this happened to? Actually, James knows someone that really happened to. Like, fiance was living a double life. So it's it's almost like impossible to imagine. Um, I'm wondering, too, Amy, if these the reason he keeps losing his job is because they hire him because he's probably competent on paper, but perhaps his social skills are so off-putting on the work scene that that's why he's losing his jobs. Megan, you nailed it. He had virtually no yeah. social skills. But he was a smart man and impressive on paper. Right. So instead of finding a new job, he took slash borrowed money from his mother's account. Now, his mother at some point did give him power of attorney. Mm -hmm. So he did have access to a lot of her funds, but it's unclear how much she was aware of him taking out. Right. And in his mind, it was okay to take or borrow this money because he knew he would pay her back when he got a new job. And that's exactly what he did. John found another job in New York City. This job paid significantly less than his previous job, which means he still had trouble paying for the home. And Megan, you're not going to believe this, but less than a year later, he lost that job too. No, I do believe it based on what you said. I think we're on job number six. This is where we see things starting to spiral. (music) Helen was very ill and she would often be hospitalized. John had to take out a loan for the home. Turns out to not be enough, though. So he realized that the home was going to be foreclosed on. Again, unbeknownst to his family, who never knew that he even lost that well-paying job. Mm -hmm. Now, John did whatever he could to save the home and really to save face. He started selling family furniture. He tried to sell their second car. He took out a second mortgage, but it just still was not enough. So the strain is growing. And one evening, John got a call from the Westfield police. Patty, his daughter, who was now 16, had been taken in with her friends for a violating curfew, and he had to go pick her up from the police station. Now, this is an embarrassment for a man like John List. Mm -hmm. People recall when he went up to pick Patty up in the middle of the night, he was wearing a suit. Of course he was. So, you know, this is a man who needs to appear a certain way. He was very angry at Patty, saying that she was an embarrassment to the family and not living up to church expectations. Rebecca's going to talk to us now a little bit about the perception John had of Patty during this event. I think part of it comes from his obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Again, I should say I'm not a psychiatrist, but the forensic psychiatrist we spoke to mentioned that they're perfectionists, but also that they sort of project those standards onto the people around them, including like spouses or children. And so for him, anything his daughter did was sort of amplified and something to become obsessed with as opposed to just, you know, maybe you get mad for one night about it. And 
in terms of where those those self-imposed high standards come from in his case it came from his upbringing which was really strict really moral really you know centered around what the church said was right so something as simple as you know talking in church could have been a serious thing so in that case you know sneaking out at night does seem like a really big deal to him and something that a lot of us remember doing when we were 16 and you know isn't the end of the world now patty was scared of her father patty had told her friends that she was more scared of her father than she was of the police and she was so nervous when she had called him that night the two had not been getting along recently, and this was really the straw that broke the camel's back for their relationship. John did not like the people that Patty hung out with, saying that they were ungodly. So after he picked her up, they got home, and Patty just got reamed out. He was screaming at her, telling her that she would go to hell, calling her a slut in front of the whole family, including her two younger brothers. She was obviously hysterical, and John was just so angry. And many people say this was the catalyst for what was to come. John starts to think about how we could take care of the family situation. Mm. Now we're talking about both the fact that they were moving away from God and the financial difficulties. His resentment towards Helen seemed to be growing as well. A lot of his resentment came from his own failings. And these were the people who kind of saw him for his failings. His wife, you know, saw that things were falling apart. And she also, you know, she didn't like that he wasn't kind of a tough guy it seemed like, and that's just going to make him feel more emasculated. And I think, you know, also his mother, you know, coddling him, even as an adult, telling him to take his raincoat when he went out. Those are things that also made him feel sort of amplified his, his feelings of, of not being adequate. But I think he didn't even really understand those resentments. The forensic psychiatrist who interviewed him before his trial, Stephen Simmering, He's the one who concluded and said, these are resentments. These are real resentments that went into his his decision-making. Whereas John List sort of characterized it in that interview with the psychiatrist as, oh, I just wish they got along better, or I wish they hadn't pushed me to get this really big house. And, you know, they were both kind of domineering, but he sort of minimized it. It's interesting, Amy. He seems like he tends to minimize, you know, like almost some of the huge or impactful factors in life and maximize the smaller ones that maybe the ordinary, quote, ordinary person could let go of. That's an interesting point. And I think we should further explore that when we talk about him because he's a very interesting fella. Yeah, I fully intend to uh, unpack this a little bit more just so you know. I'm making notes here. So by John's own admission, he considered suicide, but he realized that then he would go to hell and he did not want to go to hell. So then he decided there was a better way to handle the situation. John had a plan, but first he needed to figure out a few things. As Patty had confided in a close friend, his behavior was getting stranger and stranger. He had recently asked his family if they wanted to be buried or cremated when they died. Okay. Patty's the oldest at 16, so his kids are young. Mm -hmm. You should not be talking about burial plans with children this age. On Tuesday, November 7th, 1971, the children went to school just like any other day. While they were having a seemingly normal day, their father, John, was planning a gruesome attack. Back at home, while Helen brewed her morning tea, John approached her from behind and shot her at close range in the head. We're talking about 18 inches away. Now, Helen died immediately, but he shot her a few more times just to be sure. Next, John headed upstairs to where his mother was. His mother was in the kitchen, and she had asked John what that noise was, and he said he didn't know and asked her to look out the window to see if she could find the source of the loud sound that had just occurred in the home. John then shot her in the head, 
She also died instantly and was shot a few more times, just like Helen, to ensure that she was in fact dead. John then went downstairs and dragged Helen from the kitchen to the great room, which was also a ballroom, and he laid her on top of a sleeping bag. He then showered, got dressed, cleaned up the blood, and continued his day as if nothing had ever happened. Now, he wrote a note to the school saying that the children would be out of school as they had had a family emergency trip planned. John then mowed the lawn and made himself a sandwich. He mowed the lawn. In his suit, he mowed the lawn. I didn't realize he mowed Uh the lawn. Okay. While eating his sandwich, he got a call from Patty, who said that she would be coming home a bit early from school that day. Now, she wasn't feeling well, and she had asked him to pick her up, which he did. When they got back to the home, he went inside ahead of Patty, grabbed his gun, and waited. When Patty walked in, he shot her in the head, and she immediately died. Again, he dragged her into the ballroom to be next to her mother. He washed up, changed his clothes, and ran some errands. What kind of errands is he running during this time? I'm just curious. Megan, you won't believe this. He went to the post office and asked them to hold his mail. Mm. Remember the letters he was writing to the kids' school? Right. He mailed those letters. He went to the bank to cash some checks. And then he went to his mother's bank where he took the rest of her savings. Oh, this is methodical. I mean, he's, I, I don't want to say executing a plan because that's not a good choice of words, but he's carrying out a plan very methodically. So I might say with some rational choice here in planning. Yes, I would say this is a very, very thought out plan. That mm-hmm. actually struck me too, that Patty called saying that she needed to get picked up early. I wonder how much that frazzled John because that was a glitch in the plan. And he seems right. like someone who would not be okay with that. But it seems like he was able to jump back into plan. Well, he didn't have a choice or at least he didn't think so. Now with his wife, mother, and only daughter dead, John returned home to wait for his sons. Mm. Around 3 p.m., John Jr., who was 15 years old, went to his place of employment, and he was concerned when he didn't see his sister. You see, the two worked together, and he thought Patty would be there. So he called home to ask his father about Patty. John said, don't worry, everything is fine, hung up the phone, and went to pick up the youngest, Frederick. Just like he had done with his daughter, he entered the home before Frederick. When Frederick walked in, his father shot him in the head. He died immediately. And once again, he repeated what he had done to the others. Now there were three bodies in the ballroom. Wait, I'm confused. I thought there were four. You're right. There were four. But he left his mother upstairs where he had shot her. And he moved Helen, Patty, and John Jr. into the ballroom. Okay. Now This could just be logistics, body? though. You know, this could be could? just a logistical thing with her being too far upstairs. We don't know what her weight was. You know, this this might not be as purposeful as some might have interpreted it. That's a good point. And let's hear from Rebecca about the placement of these bodies. I think it might be as basic as he wasn't easily able to move his mother, but also that I don't think the ballroom was especially significant for him, even though to everyone who's heard the story, it's like one of the main things that we remember is, is the bodies in the ballroom. But he wanted to kill each of his family members, each of his children as they came home. And he didn't want them to see anything or know anything before they died. So basically he was hiding bodies there. That was the easiest place for him to do it. So they'd be out of the way. And I think the sleeping bags, you know, he didn't really have a good explanation for why he put them on sleeping bags. He told, I think it was a psychiatrist. He said, well, there wasn't any rug in there. It was just the hard floor, which is a not a really good explanation. But I think also with the way that he left the bodies is that he said he was trying to put his mother in her bed, I believe. And he did not, He was she was too heavy and he didn't do that. But in terms of the bodies in the ballroom, most of them were laid out, you know, just on the sleeping bag as though they were sleeping. But 
the way he left Helen, she was wearing a nightie and it was kind of pulled up indecently. And it didn't seem like he took any care with that, which is sort of, you know, someone emailed me and said, do you think that was on purpose? And I, I just have no idea, but it doesn't, of all the horrendous things he did, it feels especially, you know, unkind. Unfortunately, John's murderous rampage was not over just yet because there was still one member left of the family, John Jr. Oh, I, for- I forgot. Oh, yeah. John Jr. returned home having no idea what had just happened. And he entered through the garage like he normally would. But this time his father was hiding behind the door. He saw his father with the gun and he tried to run off. Now, this is the only family member that actually saw who their attacker was. Mm-hmm. John Jr. was shot in the back and he tried to crawl away before being shot again. Now, he did not die right away and he was trying to get away from his father. He was shot several more times before dying. Now, this is especially tragic given the fact that he put up a fight and he knew what was happening. John then dragged the final family member to the ballroom and laid him next to his mother and siblings. Now, John knew what he needed to do next. He wrote a confession to his pastor. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he did make a few calls while doing this as well because he didn't want anyone to look for the family members. He wanted to have a bit of a head start. Of course. Before leaving the home, John walked around cutting his picture out of all the family portraits. He turned the thermostat down to 50, turned on all the lights, and turned on classical music on max volume. He made himself a sandwich and then went on the run. Again, these are all practical points. Keeping the house cool, leaving, you know, the lights on so nobody's suspicious. It almost sounds like, you know, he knew what he was doing, which is a little bit scary for someone who had not been otherwise, you know, outwardly yep. violent. And Megan, he didn't just go on the run. He went on the run for 18 years. Now, this is one thing about the case that really garnered so much attention because other than killing his whole family, he did not get caught for almost two decades. I know. And that's like one of the the main features of this case is how did he get away with it for so long? And it is, you know, and remember I said I remembered in the beginning, it's because it was on America's Most Wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest problem I think that investigators had was it wouldn't be until a month later that the bodies were found. Yeah. So this gave him quite the head start and led to one of the biggest manhunts in history. Right. And at first, no one suspected anything. As far as everyone knew, the family had left for an emergency. But it was Patty's friends. Remember her friends that she had told her friends about some weird behaviors and about how she was scared of her father? Yes. Well, her friends were uneasy about this, the fact that they hadn't seen or heard from their friend. So on December 7th, this is a month after the murders, a few of Patty's friends went over to the home to see what was going on. They saw that the lights were on and music was blaring. And they thought this was strange because they did go over there somewhat late at night. They tried to get in through a window and the police came. So a neighbor had actually called the police and reported that there was some kids trying to break into the list home. Mm. But the neighbors did also think it was strange that the lights had been on for so long. And they started noticing that certain lights were beginning to burn out. So at this point, the police decide to enter the home for a welfare check of the List family. They were immediately met with the putrid smell and soon found the family's bodies some say in the shape of a cross, in the ballroom. And it was very clear that they had been deceased for some time. A further sweep of the house would also reveal Alma's body on the third floor. From the beginning, John was the primary suspect. Now, they quickly located his car because he had left it at JFK Airport. Now, this was probably done as a way to throw them off. I would have to agree. He also left the confession letter at the scene of the crime. So it was written to his pastor, but it was left at the scene. So I'm pretty sure John knew that... 
investigators would know very quickly that he was the one responsible for this. Yeah, he was just buying himself time, but he knew. There was no sign of John. Again, he had a month head start. He could be anywhere at this point. Now, a media frenzy ensued. Things like this just didn't happen in places like Westfield. Rebecca's going to talk to us a little bit about the media portrayals of the victims of the crime. I think it was a story that that really took off because it just seemed like, you know, something rotten in the suburbs, this beautiful place, this beautiful mansion, and this horrible thing had happened inside and it just shocked everyone. But a lot of the initial reporting that came out at that time was that people didn't know this family very well because they really kept to themselves. And I think there was a little reporting that um, Helen List had had some sort of nervous breakdown and she didn't leave the house a lot, but there wasn't a lot known about it at the time. And then the stuff about uh, Helen and Patty came out at trial in 1990. And that was when the story of Helen List as this woman who had syphilis, who was sick, but also the testimony at trial was that she was sort of dominated him in the relationship and, and made him feel belittled. And I think a lot of the the media stories around that time sort of played that up as, I mean, actually I'm looking at a news headline right now where it was called Lists Dark Family Secrets that, that came out at trial was that his wife had syphilis and wasn't nice to him and that his daughter was into witchcraft. So these were headlines that, you know, in 1990, you know, after the satanic panic was going to get a lot of attention. And maybe even on a more basic sense, people want to have a reason to point to why this happened. And the idea that this was a perfectly nice family, how could this have happened? That makes us feel sort of nervous because it could be anyone. But if we can say, oh, well, he and his wife had a lot of problems or, oh, well, his daughter was into witchcraft. He must have freaked out about that. You know, it sort of helps you pin it on something. So I think that might be why people, you know, like to go with that narrative so much. So there was absolutely no sign of John and a media frenzy ensued. Things like this just didn't happen in Westfield. And people were a little bit confused about who were the lists because they kept to themselves a little bit. Although the kids had friends, the parents kept to themselves. And so nobody really knew the family's story. So it was a big mystery to everyone. And people were scared, even though it was known that the father, John List, had done this. People were still scared, locking their doors and keeping their kids inside. For years, the police tried to locate John, and the case essentially went cold for nearly two decades. So, Amy, two decades. Where is John during this time? Do we find out? I know we do at some point, but I can't recall. Yes. So John was living as Robert Clark, and that's the name of an old schoolmate of his. He had gone to New York City. Then he went to Denver. He did have trouble finding work working as a short order cook so he could kind of fly under the radar. Then he found a position as an accountant. He became an active member of a Lutheran church and married a woman in 1985, and the two of them moved to Virginia. So he returned back to the East Coast, too. I would think that's a, a you know, a dangerous move for someone right. to come so close to home. Yes. He first went to Denver. He told the psychiatrist that he wanted to see the mountains, so that was why he chose it there. Uh, he became a short order cook, just trying to have a job where... No one would pay attention to him, basically. But then he figured no one was looking anymore. So he became an accountant again, fell in love, got married, uh, you know, under a false name. And eventually, as he continued to lose jobs, which was, you know, a thing that he did a lot, he ended up moving to Midlothian, Virginia, which was where he was ultimately caught. But the neighbor who 
picked him out on America's Most Wanted was one of his neighbors from the Denver area. There you have your America's Most Wanted, Megan. You saw that episode, right? Yes. It must have been a real shock for him to see it. And I think one of the questions of this case is how does a man like this go missing for this long? Well, we forget or people might not realize this is before surveillance and social media. So it was much easier to fly under the radar. Along that, along those lines, a forensic sculptor made a mold of John for America's Most Wanted, but they were going off a picture of him from when he was 19 because that's all they had. Remember, he- because he took those photos so that he took the photos so that they wouldn't have anything to go on. That was all part of his, you know, his methodical plan. Yes, but luckily, an old neighbor of his called in a tip after seeing the show on America's Most Wanted, May 21st, 1989. And she called in a tip, and on June 1st, 1989, the FBI finally arrested John List for the murders of his family. In 1990, trial began for John List, and he pled not guilty. And this is where the media really started ramping up. Everyone's starting to say things about how Helen might have had a nervous breakdown. It comes out that Helen had syphilis. It comes out that Patty may have been involved in witchcraft. Now, what was John's affect like during trial? Everyone was watching. I'm going to say he had no affect, flat. He showed absolutely no remorse. Let's hear what Rebecca has to say about this. No, everyone that we talked to, and you know, we've seen some video of it as well, he was just really never showed any emotion. And that was kind of how he was most of the time, just really stoic. And I think he read a statement in the court that you know people were really waiting for that moment, really waiting to hear if he was going to apologize and he did, but it didn't make anyone feel any better. Right. And he just seemed even his, in his apology, he was not taking responsibility for what he had done. He was saying, this wasn't my fault. Not shocking. No, that's not surprising. Well, it's probably also not surprising that John was sentenced to five life sentences. In 2008, John List died at the age of 82 from pneumonia. That brings us close to the end here, but I want to hear what you think Mm. about the driving force behind these horrendous crimes. There have been a lot of theories over the years, but before you get to that, let's hear what Rebecca thinks. Because again, Rebecca has spent years researching this case, and I'm curious what she thought about, at the end of the day, like how did this all happen? I think he grew to understand why it was wrong, but I don't think he ever really understood that he was responsible for it because he just felt like, oh, well, I was just spiraling. It seemed like the best thing at to do at the time. So that's what I did. And and now they're all in heaven. So to him, it's it's not that bad. I have gotten some emails from people who, who feel like it was an honor killing. And I, I think there's, I can see why there's elements of that, right? Because he, he, he was worried about the behavior of the people around him reflecting on him and his high moral standards. But based on interviews, based on his memoir and what the psychiatrist said, it really sounded more like he was spiraling because of their financial situation and because he felt like he needed out of this, but he couldn't just leave them because of his moral upbringing. He felt like if you left your family in poverty, that was a sin. And so he convinced himself that the ultimate goal was heaven. So he was going to send them to heaven while they were still Christians. So I think in his mind, even, even after he said, I knew it was wrong, he still saw that logic and still thought that that logic was in the end okay because they were in heaven. I mean, he thought they were going to be reunited in heaven and happy to see him. I think that's a fair assessment. Megan, what do you think? I think it's a very fair assessment. I think obviously John List was a family annihilator and there are different categories of family annihilators and the driving force behind them. So like some 
Family annihilators kill their families out of revenge, usually on upon a spouse. John, I think, falls into a couple different categories for me. They, they kind of um, overlap. There's one that's like the disappointed family annihilator. And that's the family is such a letdown to them. And usually there are reasons like you had mentioned. Um, it could be, you know, because of them not following the religious teachings of the family. So, you know what I mean? Like they they think they've let them down so much to the effect that it's better off with the family gone. And I think that's in part what happened with John. I also think that he falls into the category of family annihilators. And I'm not I, I just without having like, you know, my notes and stuff on it. I can't remember exactly what the category is, but where their own economic failures are so substantial that they cannot face the shame and disappointment that they're going to bring on their family. And so they feel that the best way out is to to elim- eliminate their family, essentially. So I think he falls into both of these categories. And then you might also say, look, he could be like the Chris Watts type. He just wanted to start a new life, you know. But I think it, his new desire to start a new life uh, is because of his economic failure and the disappointment he had in his family. So I would that, that's the best way I could explain it, which is very similar, I think, to what Rebecca said and probably better said by her. I think we also saw the theme throughout the story that he cared a lot about appearances. Mm-hmm. And somehow in his mind, he thought it would be better to do what he did than to actually go on living with a family that was moving away from the church and was in financial ruins. I agree. And I mean, Amy, look, if we went into it, I saw almost all of our criminological theories here for reasons for John's (laughs) behavior, right? I saw learning theory from his family. I saw control balance issues. All of things, all these are part of the equation that pushed Mm -hmm. him into this certain kind of um, type of, unfortunately, family annihilator. Since Rebecca is a journalist, I was interested in her opinion on whether she believed that this case would be handled differently if it was today. Now, I was specifically interested in the fact that Patty's friends knew something might be going on, but no one said anything. So let's take a listen to what Rebecca says about that. Okay. I would hope it would be handled differently today. I think especially in terms of warning signs and taking it seriously when someone says, so-and-so made a threat. So-and-so said they're going to bring a gun to school. Like these are things that we, we now are sort of making, making people aware of. I think that the issue back then was that I don't know if any of her friends who she had said things to, you know, which ranged from, I think something's bad is going to happen. And you can't really report that to her supposedly telling her drama teacher that her father was going to kill her. Like those are a wide range of things. But if you really believed it, you could say something about it, but they just couldn't believe that that would really happen, which I think is understandable. And again, something that today, maybe we know more about domestic violence. And we also, you know, when this happened in Westfield, people were like, how could this ever happen? But now we hear about murder suicides, you know, and maybe more frequently, I don't think they're maybe happening more, but we hear about it more. And I think if someone felt afraid from, for Patty, from what was said, that they could have gone to a teacher and maybe said something or even the police. And I think that's something nowadays that maybe at least they would stop by the house and and check it out. But at that point, no one really took it that seriously. And then by the time they were starting to worry, the family was already dead. I agree. I think it might be different today. However, anecdotally, what pops into my head, of course, is um, Broken Hearts. You remember the podcast about the Hart family? Yes, it's one one of the most heartbreaking cases I've heard. I thought it was as well. You just don't know. One of the things that carries through that does transcend time or appearances, you just don't always know what's going on inside someone else's home. So while I I do think optimistically we know more now and people would say more. 
it's still possible that this kind of thing happens. That's a really interesting parallel that I hadn't thought of. All right, Megan, I think we'll close out now for today, but I urge you all to listen to Father Wants Us Dead, available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll really enjoy hearing more. It's a deep dive into the case, includes interviews with people that are adjacent to the case. And yeah, you should really all go check it out. Yeah, and thank you to Rebecca for joining us and and giving us some deeper insight. We really appreciate it. And thanks to you, Amy. Sure. And thank you all for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Father Wants Us Dead, ABC News, History.com, New York Times, and NJ.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.